Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am very much looking forward to my conversation with Alan Gallant so we can discuss his new podcast, Colin Sport After Dark. Uh, but before we get to that, I do have some very sad news. Marcy Robin, the longtime editor of Shadowgram, uh, has passed away. Um, this was announced on the Dark Shadows news page. Marcy was an instrumental figure in the Dark Shadows fandom. Marcy was involved going back to the late 70s. She became involved in the ShadowCon events in um, California. Uh, she continued to be involved as, as a member of the committee at the Dark Shadows festivals. She handled the costume contests and did many other things for the festivals. Uh, and of course, Shadowgram, uh, the Dark Shadows newsletter, which many fans, myself included, would look forward to receiving in the mail. It was always a thrill to get a Shadowgram in the mail and true labor of love and an immense amount of work and effort. Those are just a, a few of the things Marcy did. She was a great fanfic writer as well in one of her short stories was used in one of the big Finnish Dark Shadows audio dramas called Hellwind. She was a school teacher in Temple City, California. A huge, huge loss to the Dark Shadows fan community. I did not know Marcy was ill and I was just thinking about her earlier this week and saying to myself, I have to try to reach out to Marcy Robin to see if she would want to do one of these podcasts. I had had Kathy Rush on the podcast before, but Marcy Robin was certainly someone I would have loved to have talked to. I was very sad to hear about her passing and my deepest condolences go out to her many friends and family. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am your hostess, Danielle. Or am I Penny Dreadful? I don't know the difference anymore. But one thing I do know is that I have an excellent guest here with me today, Alan Gallant, who is an actor, educator, theater technician, and stage manager currently living in Florida. Alan is originally from Maine, where he grew up. He's joining me today to talk about his great new YouTube show slash podcast, Collins Port After Dark. Alan, welcome to Terra Collinwood. So <laughs> I appreciate it so much. Oh my goodness. It's great. <laughs> um, it's great having you here. I was just talking to you right before we started recording, but you know, we had corresponded over the last uh, couple of years. You you sent me like the breakdown of the gum cards and um, you know, we'd write back and forth. And then the other day I was uh, uh, looking on YouTube, just kind of surfing and on my feed, I see Collins Port After Dark, Alan Galland. And I said, what? Alan has a show? Oh my goodness. So I watched it immediately and I immediately loved it. Um, it's a really great show. Uh, I love just that you infuse so much research into it and, and humor as well. I love cheap Nicholas Blair. <laughs> 
Oh, yes. <laughs> Chief Nicholas Blair, yes. <laughs> and uh, but you uh, you really uh, go to town on on the research on the topics that you do and you use clips to from the show to illustrate certain points that you're making. And it's uh, it's really uh, exciting uh, to see a, a new uh, Dark Shadows podcast. We're bringing it back to New England because you're a, you're a native New yes. Englander, too. I love B is for Barnabas. <laughs> B is for Barnabas and for Bangor. But, oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so we're 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 keeping it uh, in in ye old haunted New England yeah, here, but yes. you're 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 in Florida now, but you're it's in it's in your blood. The, the it the... is it's totally <laughs> in my blood. The only thing that's not in my blood anymore are the temperatures. That's yeah, it's a, yeah. Oh. time just a little bit too chilly. Yeah, it is. Yeah, right now I took I just took uh, crispy out before we started recording, and it was just really outside. It's very uh, unpleasant out there right now. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> But um, I want to talk to you about, before we get into the podcast, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you originally got into, into Dark Shadows and, uh, and uh, you know, you talk a little bit about this in your own uh, show, but I'd like to, like to explore that a little bit, if you would. Sure. Um, so I was born in Bangalore um, long, too many years ago, but um, I grew up in a small town called Glenburn, which is right outside of Bangor. It's like six or seven miles outside of the center of town. Mm -hmm. And it was a tiny little town of 1500 people. There's not a lot to do to stimulate your imagination in a tiny little town, except run around in the woods and, and do various things and go to school. And so when I was not quite seven years old, it was in February of 1966, I turned on the TV after coming home from school. And I didn't have to run home from school. I lived right next door to the school, which was convenient and inconvenient. If I wanted to pretend to be sick, I had to pretend all day long. Otherwise, mother would send me home. But um, I turned on the television and uh, come to find out later, it turned out to be episode 172, which was the episode in which uh seance had been held and it sort of outed laura the phoenix um dr guthrie was involved yeah. and uh at the end of that episode they play the tape recorder because they had set a tape recorder up and nothing is on it except the crackling of fire yeah. and that, that was what i saw and of course it was in black and white would have been anyway i had a 19 inch zenith portable television set it was black and white so that's what i grew up with and uh, but I didn't think a lot about it, except I really liked the vibe of it. I liked the mood. I liked the music. I liked the fact that there were shadows everywhere and there's a fire crackling and all this sort of thing. And it sort of interested me. But I didn't really think too much about it because that was all it was. It was an image to me at that point. So mm -hmm. a number of months later, I had some friends at school that were started talking about this vampire that was sinking his teeth into everybody on the show and i said i remember kind of remember that show so i went back and he started watching it and i really started picking it up uh probably around the time that david was being threatened but i have memories of it from about 1968 on um mm -hmm. so david collins being threatened by the vampire was kind of like you know it's like a, a scare thrill yeah. kid and so we talked and we talked and we talked all about that. You know, is he gonna is he gonna get him and all this sort of thing and in our own kid way. And that's how I got started on it. I didn't really get fully imprinted and addicted to it until later, like in '68, and certainly by 1897, when the stories became really, I don't know, more vivid. I guess for my 
perception of it. Um, and, yeah. uh, and I saw it in color a few times during 1897, which really like blew my mind. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Were you, yeah. uh, so you said you, you were, your friends at school were watching it too. You, so you'd have, uh, conversations about, you know, you'd have convos and, and a little bit later on, we would actually do play acting. We do improvisations and we would fight over who played what characters. Oh, cool. Who were, who were you? Uh, well, I was the shy kid, believe it or not, and uh, a lot of shy kids going to the theater eventually. Same, yeah, same here. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I ended up, you know, I would end up playing Willie or you know, <laughs> one of the ancillary. Once in a while, like, oh, let him play Barnabas. He hadn't played Barnabas in a while, so that would that would be fun. I had one friend, Earl Murphy, um, who since passed on, but he was my best bud for two or three uh -huh. years in in uh, in grade school and middle school, and we were heavy heavy into dark shadows had another friend wade curtis who's still around he lives in new hampshire oh, and okay. we used to do the same thing all the time so mm -hmm. that was kind of the whole thing but there were a lot of kids that were very very aware of the show at my school yeah at time, so that must have been also i mean i'm in new england but i'm in massachusetts so you were in maine where the show was set so that must have been an additional kind of fun oh, aspect to it Every time Roger said, oh, these trips to Bangor, I'd go like, yeah, come to Bangor. <laughs> Bring Barnabas. You know? That's great. I love it. I love that. Did you, you like you, I want to get into your, when you, uh, on your show where you talk about the, the bubblegum cards and stuff, were you collecting any of the Dark Shadows merchandise at that time as well? I didn't really have an opportunity to. I had friends mm -hmm. that had the game. So okay. we played a game once in a while. I remember doing that and, um, uh, uh, I had a few friends that would like have the cards or whatever, but I yeah. never, the stores that we went to didn't seem to have them for some strange reason. Um, mm -hmm. They were kind of a more of a mom and pop thing. We were going to local AMP most of the time. So yeah. uh, they didn't have, they had the 16 magazines, which I used to voraciously yeah. read you know, mm -hmm. back in the day. So, yeah. but I, I, so I had some of the 16 magazines I had, um, Famous Monsters, 52. Well, I, got, I got that later, actually. Oh, I, oh I, did that's you? That's a more recent acquisition. A lot of what I have is much more recent acquisition. But I see. I also uh, had a bunch of paperback novels. Oh, okay. Yeah. A bunch mm -hmm. of those. And those kind of kept me connected to the show even after it went off the air for a little while. But mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't, a, I didn't have, I used to, I had, I had to go begging if I wanted money, pocket money. I didn't have sure. what you call an allowance. Uh, right. So there wasn't a lot of, of that. My parents yeah. provided very well for me, but uh, there wasn't a lot of extra fruit for yeah. those days. So mm -hmm. I, did, did you, did you go see uh, House and Night of Dark Shadows when those came out? I did not. I saw House much later. Oh, later. Okay. Much later. Yeah. yeah. Like a decade yeah. later. So. <laughs> yeah. Now, were you also a fan of other stuff of that nature, like Universal or Hammer horror films or any of that stuff? Or was it or or sci-fi fantasy kind of stuff? I liked anything that had atmosphere. I didn't oh. like I never liked uh, body horror or any of that sort of thing. No, it's yeah. kind of the, the vogue today. I liked yeah. what you referred to as terror as opposed to horror. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, there was, there was certainly a lot of that going on. So I watched, we had a, we, you got, you know about Eddie Driscoll. So, oh, Eddie Driscoll. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. He was, a horror, he was a horror host when I was a little boy. Yeah. Uh, doing weird. And weird, yeah. It, um, uh, I think uh, Crandall was the one I saw him, the lighter one. That mm -hmm. I saw him do, the guy with the third eye. Yeah. Uh, but, um, 
that was kind of my my thing. I, I liked the vibe of it. And I didn't start consuming literature until I was probably 10, 11, 12 in there. And I started con uh, devouring the classics in terms of that. Frankenstein, Dracula. Um, uh, I didn't read Henry James until a bit later in high mm -hmm. school. Think, yeah. but um, but all that that sort of that spook vibe rather than the screaming horror vibe was right. always part of my childhood. And my mother occasionally would forbid me from watching Dark Shadows because I would have nightmares about the <laughs> werewolf or something. And and one one occasion, my brother, my I have a brother that's ten years older than me. Mm -hmm. and when I was about eight, uh, the werewolf was really starting to pick up on Dark Shadows. And um, one night probably two or three o'clock in the morning, he finds me behind the door of my bedroom with the, in the corner behind the door. So I'm like hiding behind there and I'm, my face is in the corner. I'm going, help, help, the werewolf's getting me. I'm completely asleep. Uh, so he just takes me and, and puts me back into bed. And the next day, I don't know what happened until I'm told. So my mother says, you're not watching that show anymore. And <laughs> I go, what, what, what? And of course I whine and I wheedle for about two or three days and she relents. But it that it had that kind of effect on me occasionally. And it was usually the the real jump scares that yeah. did it. The rest of it was like I ate it up. Yeah. No yeah. Yeah. I had nightmares too. Uh, my mom at one point, she she had been a fan in the 60s, but uh, my uncle Val's hardcore fan at that time, but he was the one showing me all the, the Dark Shadows episodes. So she, I was having nightmares too. And she, at one point, she she met said to him like, "Oh, you, you got there's, there's too many bad dreams. You know, we got to stop this now." And I, I was like, "No, I want to keep watching it." Uh, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, I would have especially you know with the Bar Barnabas terrorizing David and stuff. Like I would have dreams where I was in those situations, like oh, where yeah. they, where I'm in the old house and the. I hear the dogs howling and the doors shut, you know, and I remember that happens yeah. to David and I'd have dreams like that. And I'd know Barnabas was, was coming and stuff. Um, but I couldn't get enough of it. I had to keep going back for more. Um, did you, so you got into the theater and it was dark shadows an influence in that respect at all. Yeah. Because of all the play acting and the improvisation that we kids used to do, mm -hmm. it got me involved in that, uh, a lot. It also got me, um, and interested in history uh, of of a sort, mm -hmm. particularly Victorian history because of the 1897 period. But um, so I got interested in research through Dark Shadows. I got um, I, I didn't get my degrees until I was in my 40s. And mm -hmm. when I had gone to college for a short time before, but in between, it was about 17 or 18 years before I went back to school. And um, I was doing research as a hobby. I mean, this is something that most people don't normally do. So, or at least most people that I knew wouldn't normally do this sort of thing. But I used to go to the Bangor Public Library and do um, microfilm research. This would have been back in the 80s and 90s. And um, I gather a lot of information about Dark Shadows through that. So I've been doing that for years, kind right. of thing. Yeah. But um, it definitely influenced my getting into the theater. Uh, I did not come into the theater by the normal way. I wasn't a theater kid uh, at all. Same. Yeah. Have, yeah, we didn't have anything in our high school. Mm -hmm. So we did senior plays, which meant we did these goofy little comedy one acts kind of thing. They were They weren't 
we weren't doing Antigone or, you know, Shaw or anything like that. We were just doing silly stuff that would make our parents laugh. And so that's how I got into it. And I got convinced by my senior advisor to dress in drag for one of the, <laughs> one of the shows. And it was like, I fit back then I was really tiny mm -hmm. and I fit into my mother's dresses and she never <laughs> for that. She never forgave me for that. <laughs> um, but I did. And I played an old lady in one of these mm -hmm. um, it was a waiting room comedy at a doctor's office kind of thing. Yeah. And that's how I kind of got into it. But then I took one class in community college. And then for a couple of years, nothing really. I, I did various odd jobs. I worked in the woods with a friend of mine. I did drywall and construction. And I did, I was just kind of floating around. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually um, I was given, I think my mother noticed it in the paper because she gone to this theater. Lakewood Theater is in Madison, Maine. It is an old Broadway tryout house from the 30s and 40s. It is the longest running summer stock theater in the country. Oh, wow. It's been running since 1901. Mm -hmm. And it's now um, run by a group of, um, it's called the Cornville Players. They're a uh, community theater group and they've kept mm -hmm. it going. They've raised money and they've worked on the building and kept it going. Originally, it was a 700-seat house, big Broadway-style fly space, the whole nine yards. When I worked there, it was the last two years, it was an actor's equity theater. So it was a union house. So I got training there, and that's how I got started. Um, mm -hmm. Weirdly, it's like you either you sink or swim. You either love it or you hate it because you're working 14 to 16 hours a day. And they're not paying you anything, but they're telling you you're, you're privileged because we're not asking you to pay us to learn. Right. All this. And they're right, because a lot of these internships and stuff cost money. Yeah. And this was back in 82, 83. Both mm -hmm. of us that worked at Lakewood Theater and worked with Su Susan Stroman, if you know who that is. Oh, yeah. I worked with her. She was a she was um, she played Roxy Hart in uh, Chicago when yeah. we did. Wow. Well, that was that was a lot of fun. And a bunch of other Broadway people came through. So it was a great opportunity. I got to work with some Broadway designers uh, or work for them, I should say, because I was just a plebe at that time. But um, that was how I got involved. And within a year after that, I was working professionally as a, a shop foreman, set, set builder, what have you, and, and did it for a number of years. And, and uh, then the acting started. And uh, the acting happened sort of organically. It was not, I didn't come out of conservatory and I was learning how to get rid of certain predilections in my speech from growing mm -hmm. up in the Bangor area, uh, because I would say get instead of get. And, yeah. <laughs> and I would get practically clubbed by the directors for doing that. And <laughs> I'm, okay, I won't do that anymore. You know, it's that kind of thing. And uh, as I tell my speech students, every once in a while I get excited and you'll, you'll hear it come back in. You know, right. Really. And, yeah. and that's kind of what that was. But then I got into acting and I did that for 25 years. I actually split time for about four years and almost burned myself completely out doing that because I was just working from pillar to post. And um, but I was working full time in the shop and full time in rehearsal. It was like crazy stuff. Wow. Wow. But I was working under some other people. So I wasn't doing it all myself, which is mm -hmm. thank God because it was bad. In others. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And then about 10, 12 years ago, I got back into the tech end of it because it was a steady paycheck and medical and all that good stuff. So, And you're now you're doing that in Florida now? You're, uh, yeah, I'm in uh, Winter Park. Yeah, I'm in Winter Park, Florida, which is just outside of Orlando. It's a, it's a, a, a smaller but very wealthy kind of posh 
little community. So there's there's support for theater there. Um, mm -hmm. Rollins College is there, which is um, is famous for its um, MBA. Actually, that's mm -hmm. what they're famous for there. Uh, and my stepdaughter played soccer there and got a degree there. So oh, um, great, yeah. You have you have this show that you started doing, and you know over the last couple of years, like I had mentioned, you'd sent me the breakdown of the the bubble gum cards. The the amount of research that you you do is really impressive, and uh, I mean, I'm just blown away by how you were able to correlate the images with the epi actual episodes that the that took place, even the photo shoots, like the promotional photo shoots, you figured out some of the, the dates that those mm -hmm. took place. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to ask you about how how you went about doing that. But before I do, what made you decide to do a Dark Shadows podcast? Um, I got over the terror of doing. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Doing. That's how I that's how I motivate myself. I think about things for months and months and months. Yeah. And I figure well, how am I going to start this? So I have to organize everything ahead of time. I, I have a bit of OCD, uh, which you might have been able to tell from the detail of something <laughs> I do, but um, it's more or less under control. So I, I, I have fun with it now and do things I like to do with it. But um, yeah, it was um, it was that kind of a thing. It was, I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it and I said, well, maybe I can do this. And I played around with iMovie so that I at least had a basic working knowledge of yeah. how to do the editing and stuff because I hadn't touched that mm -hmm. and figured out, well, you know, maybe I can use the audio to do this. And, and what do I, what can I use? And thank God MPI and Dan Curtis Productions, as long as I don't try to monetize, they'll allow me to use the, the little clips. So. Mm -hmm. They always send me a little thing every time I post. It says copyrighted, but it's okay. It's, oh, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you, Jim Pearson and Dan Curtis Productions. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it's a hobby. It's a labor of love. So I'm not going to, I'm never going to monetize it anyway. So. And I, I love, you know, back in the fanzine days, you had, I mean, there was just this proliferation of um of fanzines out there you had a such a variety and they all had their own distinct uh flavors and that's what i love i wanted to see this happening with these types of shows like youtube shows and podcasts and things like that because we have resident of collinwood with jewel and uh, i know patrick's on and gordon yeah. and uh, quite often and then we have the uh, between the shadows with kara and Kristen. uh there's the dark paradise with rachel and there we have um, the literary license often covers Dark Shadows related topics, plus a lot of the classic horror podcasts touch on Dark Shadows quite quite often, Classic Horrors Club or uh, Monster Kid Radio, die cast movie podcast. But it's great to see uh, a new, for the new year, as we go into the new year, a new Dark Shadows show. Um, one thing I really enjoy seeing you do is how you for example in the first episode you got the records from jeff kenny that were used the sound cues that were you and jeff has been on the show uh and jeff selling a lot of his collection right now but um that you obtained the records uh the sound cues that civil weinberger used to use and then you figured out you know you pulled the episode 
uh, and then you layered, you figured out how the sound was layered and explained and your, your experiences as a uh, technical director in theater, I'm sure helped inform your knowledge yeah. of how that worked. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? How you, how yeah. you figured that out? Your, your interview with Nick Bezink also helped uh, tremendously because he was talking about things other than video there for a few moments and that yeah, sort of Nick's like, great. Yeah. Uh, clicked, mm -hmm. clicked on that. So, yeah, I'm very, of course, I'm interested in how, how things work because of my technical experience. So um, I'm interested in, I'm also interested in pacing together for my imagination's sake. How did, mm -hmm. the, how did the working day work there? I love the stories and I love the, I love the spackling and, and trying to figure out how to make everything work that, you know, that, yeah. that, that was practically day to day difficult for them to make work. Yeah. I love that stuff too, but I also love, you know, touchstones like this, this little guy right here. Oh, wow. The scarab. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I look for stuff that's connected to the show and whatnot. And this is pretty common. You can find these. Um, yeah. They, wow. they, as a matter of fact, and I think they even, I don't know where they manufacture them, but even in Egypt, they would sell them for, mm -hmm. you know, tourists and so on. But I got a good deal on that because yeah, it's the for the audio I, listeners. Uh, uh, Alan just held up the Laura Scarab. Scarab, and yeah. it's the human brass version. Yeah, uh, I had for years a little plastic version of it because that's <laughs> all I could find and afford. But um, I, I do that. Um, the whole thing—that's the whole thing. Uh, Jeff was selling those, and that's that's one of the more uh, involved financially. Uh, sets of things that I own right now uh, because it is directly associated with the show. I thought mm. it was worthy of, of trying to explain myself to family and friends. The, re the records you mean. On it. Yes. <laughs> and um, it's, um, it's brilliant. There's actually a, um, let me grab one. Sure. One of the great things I love too, is that you actually demonstrated the, I get, I think I would be nervous because it's like, Oh, I don't want to scratch it or something, but you actually, Oh, there! I bought a better. Um, I bought a better um, a phonograph for that purpose. Turntable. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. So, that I, but these are also. Um, here we go, right there. Yeah. Yep. So you, the... you can see that you can see the bands on it there. Yeah. A little bit. Um, the company that made these is Fine Recording Incorporated. It's a family-owned business. It was in New York City. They were on 57th Street, so they were just a couple of blocks away from the Studio 16 on on 53rd Street. Um, if you go if you go find Recording Incorporated on Google, you can find an article written on it and how mm -hmm. they put it together. It, basically, I you know I didn't know much about these. What they are is acetates, and of course, rock and rollers have these put out as as sort of. They they um, they cut them first to make sure that they work, and then they make a a mold from them, and then they make a stamper, and, and then they do the vinyl thing when they're mm -hmm. doing that. But um, these guys are made out of aluminum, and they're they're coated with lacquer. They're like dipped in lacquer, and they then take a lathe, and they cut the grooves into it. And the reason I can play this on my uh, turntable is because they were cut for stereo needles rather than acetate needles. Okay. The original ones were cut for acetate needles, which wore less. They were, they were, they didn't wear as much as a diamond needle or, or a sapphire needle. These were cut particularly to be a little bit heavier wear. They're not, 
designed to be played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, which is why on most of these, it says 768. These were probably replacement discs for the original discs that were mm. worn out. Yeah. And they had a whole bunch of them replaced in July of 1968, which is why I know they are the ones that were used in August of 1968, which is where the show that I used 554 was yeah. aired. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it's remarkable that you're able to to figure that out. It also is remarkable that Sybil Weinberger was able to, you know, that she'd plan that out in advance and she'd have to drop the needle right, I mean, uh, in the specific band to, to have the right because uh, oh. they were they were playing the music as they were taping the show, so totally yeah. live, and the actors couldn't hear it, at yeah. least not most of it, because they 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 mentioned that in the past that they just didn't hear that stuff. We they got cued by a stage manager if they needed a cue for sound. Yeah, yeah. I asked Lara directly about the Lara Parker, the late great Lara Parker, when she was on the pod. And she mentioned that they couldn't hear yeah. the, the music. So. Yeah, I know that's that's remarkable too. I know Nick had mentioned they switched to um, uh, carts, you know, like that they carts, were that was in his era, late, late in the show. Later, yeah. So it's just amazing that Sybil. Yeah. I mean, some every so often it would there would be a mistake, Good you know. Yeah, but but yeah. but honestly, like I mean, most of not ninety nine percent of the time, she seemed to to get it right I on there. I think they were able, uh, in some cases, there are also, uh, this one, I don't know if you can see it, but there is a white grease pencil Q mark on this. There it is. Right? Oh, yes. Yep. They marked them they, so that they would know which Q they were using um, mm -hmm. or which one was a popular Q that they used a lot, that sort of thing. Um, but also they had double turntables. Mm -hmm. I'm sure of this. And I think Nick even makes mention of it in your interview that they, they had something like that. And, and so they could cue them like a DJ. Yeah. So they could like stop it and just let their hand off of it and it would, it would go. Yeah. So I think that that probably helped in, in terms of cueing it a bit. Yeah. What a job. I mean, they had to have, she had to pick the music. She had to then edit it and change it during rehearsals because, oh, that doesn't work after all kind right. of thing going and then she had to um, probably give uh, make markings on the script for herself and also for the audio techs because the audio techs were the ones that were going to um, uh, pot the uh, the cue in in other words raise raise the volume so it could be heard and then take the volume out when it was supposed to go out and all yeah. that sort of so it's a lot of work. It's a tremendous amount of work. But... Sure. And then all the all the sound effects that were involved as well. I know you talked about the sound being layered in as well. And I remember at one point I was on the podcast talking about Maggie Evans, that nightmare she had where she was uh, screaming. And you sent me the link to the original scream from the from the horror record from like the picture. A 1960 yeah. horror record, so we yeah. knew that it had been previously done and was probably in some library somewhere as well. Yeah, you know, sound effects library. ABC you... probably had, you know, I'm sure that's. And I remember writing to you and asking about the werewolf howl because that howl is the, for the werewolf is used. I've heard that in other things over the years, and I wonder. I think that, that may even go back to Universal or something. I mean, that goes back a long way. Yeah. Uh, the growls are different. I, I've never been able to find those. The werewolf the, growls and snarls. I've never been able to find those. Those were some kind of unique something that they had. It's yeah. They had some. I, I'd love to to get my hands on whatever sound effects library they had. You know that ABC prov provided for them to use or something because it would be interesting to to hear that. Um, and Sybil Weinberger, she's still with us, thankfully. And yeah. I know. Uh, uh, 
a longtime Dark Shadows fan on who's been on the podcast is planning to to do uh, an interview with her. But I'd I'd love to get her on here at some point. That well. would be lovely. That she's she's kind of re- a little bit reclusive. She doesn't do. I don't think she even did the festivals, as far as I know. But she was married no, to, to Bob. Her husband did, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, you also another thing. I'm like as I mentioned a couple of times the the gum cards, the bubble gum cards. Like, how did you figure out specifically? I mean, some you can tell, you know, from looking at okay, this comes from this episode. Some are a little more difficult to place. Um. Like you must have really examined, you know, the 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 hairstyle or the oh, yeah. costumes or the whatever yeah. they're wearing. Like, how did you figure that out? OCD that comes in handy for that, <laughs> uh, definitely. Um, yeah, the the Barnabas bangs are the Barnabangs, as we were yes, <laughs> um, are like fingerprints in a lot of cases. They, uh-huh. They're they, the poor Vinny. There's no way that you could replicate <laughs> them exactly every single day. You know, it mm-hmm. looks. Well, I glue this in exactly the same place while I put this graph paper on your face. You know, no, it's not <laughs> going to happen that way. So they were all a little bit different. Some days he looked a little messed up. He looked like he'd been out a little too late, you know, yeah. and the bangs would be a little bit funky. But uh, and, and then other days they'd look beautiful, like, you know, and uh, that's kind of how I told mm-hmm. uh, the difference Um and that and uh, sometimes a different tie just to confirm it or a, a, the dress, of course, the rehearsal dresses, they they kind of mess you up. So you have to look for something else because the, um, the Grayson Hall used to wear green and gold smock all the time in rehearsal. So you mm-hmm. can't really tell. But the hairstyle that she wore in the gum card series when that was the, like the first time and you could tell that's a fresh cut and I looked at it and I looked at the first episode and she kind of shows it off a couple of places in the episode uh, where she just, um, I don't know if she'd actually just gotten it cut or whether she just stopped wearing the wig or the fall that she, that she'd been wearing yeah. or a combination of both, but you could tell it, that was, that's, that's what, that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got the same thing. Um, eventually I want to do the green card set and the posters and all of that stuff. Oh, great probably yeah. pepper them out between other things but so it's not to completely bore people that might not be quite as interested in the cards but yeah I definitely want to go through those because that's part of what I've been doing and it's really been a process of a lot of years um, of doing it and leaving it alone and then coming back and doing something else because I discovered something about one of them or something like that right. and it's a never-ending process it's not really 100 percent. it's just kind of like pretty sure well your research is great because you were able to not only look at the episodes but you pulled for example from uh, a photo in famous monsters of Filmland, and then correlating that to the ron barry interview with with the cast uh you know that robert rodan was there and humbert allen straight and and you started to kind of figure out based on on those things too when certain photos were taken there yeah. the one the ones that i think i i i was blown away by was you know the the sort of the publicity shots just the stock photos I'm like how did how did he know that that stock photo was taken on that date that was amazing but uh you know with Ron Barry coming to the set there were you know oh they stuck around took some some pictures and there were other instances of that so that was really fascinating a lot of the ones that don't have background with with uh Jonathan Frid uh and you also notice that he has the ring on the wrong finger uh-huh. Uh, I didn't I, I don't think I mentioned that <laughs> I think you did uh, I think you did maybe I did maybe I did yeah. um yeah. because of the angle of the shot that's the mm-hmm. 
just put it on your left hand, you know, that kind of thing. But he also, his hair is very specific. One of the bangs is really kind of wiggly uh, <laughs> on that particular episode. And that's episode 532, 33. <laughs> uh, that was also an episode at which there are pictures, which I didn't get to, but there are pictures of um, Carol Gould, who was president of, of Jonathan's fan club back then, or one of his bigger fan clubs. And she was also president of uh, Humbert's uh, fan club at that <laughs> time. She would visit the studio and she that was one of the days she did. It must have been a madhouse around there because there were kids in there and there were <laughs> promo shots plus, oh, let's rehearse and let's actually tape, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, was pretty crazy. I'm Same sure day. it was. Yeah, that must that must have been a really cool day to be uh, at the studio with, oh, with yeah. all of the excitement going on and all of the activity going on. What are, So you mentioned you're going to do the green uh, card set and the pinups. What other, what else can people expect for from future episodes of Collins Board After Dark? The Quentin postcards, of course. Oh, yes, we got to do the postcards. <laughs> Don't want to forget those. <laughs> Um, also there, there are several, like I mentioned, 532, 533 is a big promo photo shoot day. Mm -hmm. So I might like to examine that. 331 is a huge day. They started early morning rehearsals and kept shooting right up till tape time. So mm -hmm. there are a ton of photographs from episode 331. Um, uh, there's a werewolf shoot that happens kind of, uh, I think, I'm thinking, um, I'm pretty, pretty sure it's 699 just before they go into uh, 1897, uh, where the werewolf is kind of trapped in the mausoleum situation. Oh, yeah. There's also a picture from that, which is interesting, uh, a tie into what was going on with the relationship with 16 magazine and Gloria Stavers, who was the editor in chief of 16 for many, many years. She went to the studio quite frequently and took a lot of pictures. You can tell her pictures because they're slightly overexposed. Uh, it's like no lines on the faces kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it, it, but she got a lot of great historical pictures of a lot of rock bands back then, too. Mm -hmm. But she actually had a picture of herself taken with the werewolf at one point when she was there at the studio, probably interviewing people or getting them to fill out sheets or whatever and deciding oh well we can't publish that in the paper uh, in, the, in the magazine but we'll publish that you know uh, yeah. however she's doing it she used to write she used to correspond with jonathan too there's a couple letters out there where she corresponded with him because he was giving her pictures for one of their features um one in particular talks about my life in pics which was one of the features that they used to do with the stars and he sent her a picture of him with his grandfather when he was a little boy you may have seen that picture before mm -hmm. she writes him a letter about that yeah. uh, one of the fans got a hold of that somehow and and, and posted it uh, probably on facebook a number mm -hmm. of years ago it's crazy how much activity was going on in that studio that yeah. wasn't just wasn't just rehearsing and taping Right. There was a lot of stuff going on. Because... There was. And it, it it's remarkable, too, how things still even, uh, you know, all these years later keep turning up. Like, I'm sure you've seen the pictures that uh, Rob Saccone sent me because his uncle was a cameraman on Dark Shadows. So he sent uh, Rob, I mean, it was shortly after I launched the podcast, Rob emailed me out of the blue and said, hey, my uncle was a cameraman on Dark Shadows and he took all these pictures. Do you do you want to use them for anything? I uh, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, please. Yes, please. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just 
I those were never seen before. So that was, you know, things like that keep turning up, which is really cool. And I'm sure there, there's more stuff out there. One thing I'd love to find out is the identity of um, Frenchie, who used to do the art, the, you know, Frenchie the Blanche. Frenchie yeah. Blanche. Is, yeah, is Frenchie still out there or is that? I have no idea if she's still out there or not. Yeah. Some people uh, speculated she... that it might have been Gloria Stavers herself using a, a pseudonym, but Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if she was artistically inclined or not, but I don't uh, know. They're, those are pretty evocative of the time. I mean, they're those, cool. Yeah. You know, all, all the pictures of like um, Jim Morrison or. Yeah. Paul Revere and the Raiders. Yeah, yeah. I was drawn next to them because it was pretty much pushed towards young women, which is why I used to get crap for having them when I was a kid because I, uh, I was a little boy. <laughs> and, uh, and and I lived in an extremely cisgendered world back then, too. So um, 1960s in small town America. So, yeah. But I used to, I used to love to go to the AMP store and I go, 35 cents, dad. It's all it is, 35 cents. <laughs> you would let me buy them do you have the do you have all of the 16 magazines that have dark shadows I, articles in them at this point not all of them but i'll tell you what i just did i just ordered two more off of ebay uh that complete my 1970 with the specs and the regular magazines oh right? wow all the ones from 68 which is from like about mid 68 on when they started noticing that something was going on down there at studio 16 and uh 1969 got all of those in the specs as well so i've only what i've really got left are there there's uh not every single issue of 71 has them but there's there's a few key issues uh, and then uh, tiger beat too 71 and i've got some tiger beats um yeah. i've got i just bought a lot of these probably about three or four months ago and these puppies yeah this is my favorite one of tiger beat right here and i've got some flip too yeah this one. oh yeah i have that one too yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. that's <laughs> one of the best covers in terms of the dark shadows covers yeah uh, i wonder tiger. i wonder how many total teen magazines ran articles on dark shadows there were so <laughs> many enormous amount of them and it was yeah. amazing considering that even the ones on the west coast finally figured it out like yeah <laughs> Tiger Beat west coast magazine so they didn't they yeah. didn't they, they took them all to catch up to stavers at 16 but they sure. did they did uh, yeah and moses was the editor-in-chief of uh, tiger beat and she also used to assistant edit some of the other west coast magazines with her friend yeah. Laura powell and ann moses has a book out called meow Mm -hmm. And it's about her experience at Tiger Beat with all oh. of the wonderful stars that she met. And she actually dated uh, Morris Gibb for a while. Mm -hmm. So it's wow. pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I, have, I have a lot of the, I have some of the teen magazines. I have a lot of the monster magazines from that era um, uh, and in, in into the 70s as well, um, especially the ones that have uh, Dark Shadows on the cover. A paint, I love the painted covers, you know, that I mean, the Go-Go's the, the, the Go really covers, iconic, yeah. Um, but, you know, I have some up, up here that I, I just kind of yes, you hang, do. hang them up on yeah. the wall up there. Uh, awesome. Another thing I'd love to see you do is, I don't know if you can see it, but I have... Like you meant, you showed the scarab, you know, uh, the origins yes. of things like that. Like I have the carousel there that was used, that they used to build, to create the playroom carousel. The, the, they just the, added some stuff to it, I guess, but it's the they same. They did. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the merry, the little, you know, metal, a tin 
merry-go-round there. Uh, what was the company? Chine, I think it was. C-H-I-E-N, I think it was called. But yeah, things like that, which didn't were not created specifically for Dark Shadows, but were acquired and then repurposed for Dark Shadows is kind of a fun thing to look at. Like the cane, you know, that 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 right. company that makes the, the cane and things. That Those are kind of fun things to, to know about, too. They are. They are. Uh, the cane originally, I think, is from Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. Yep. It was sold by, uh, it was sold by, the ones that they got for the show were Uncle Sam, Canes mm -hmm. and Umbrellas. And it's a business that no longer exists, but it was, it was there in New York City on Manhattan, very close to the studio. And mm -hmm. uh, that's where they got a lot of that stuff yeah. from. But yeah, they're everyday, not everyday items, but they're available items right. uh, that, that were, they became part of the iconography of the show. The, like the ring, the barnacles. Yeah, right. Ring. Ring and the, and Julia's medallion, which a lot of people have tried to figure out where that comes from. And Patty Karapinar was kind enough to I should I should show this off more more often. Yes, you should because <laughs> it's very very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. The Julia medallion. Yeah, An excellent oh. job on that. <laughs> it's uh, really uh, good. excuse me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> look into the center. Of the I don't know. Okay. <laughs> But um, yeah, I know I know people have tried to kind of figure out where that came from, and I thought it was like something like Sarah Coventry or something, but I, I can't, you know, nobody's been able to find it. There's certain mm -hmm. things that have been very very difficult or impossible for people to find, yeah. but we keep trying. Right? Our yeah, he makes us keep trying. So. <laughs> Before we wrap things up, I want to ask you a couple of, a couple of questions here. So. How did you discover the Dark Shadows fandom? So you were a fan as a kid. Mm -hmm. How did you kind of come back into uh, the Dark Shadows world? Okay, the first thing that happened was in 1982, I'm down at Lakewood Theater in the summertime doing slave labor and learning the trade. And there's a television station in Poland Spring, Maine called WMTW Channel 8. And they were running the... the um, the package they were running the package and uh i saw a couple of episodes down there on a little tiny black and white tv which was very nostalgic because i watched most of them on black and white tv anyway you know when i was a kid and so that kind of got me going and weirdly when i went up to back up to bangor after the summer was over i realized that if i placed my antenna the right way i could pick up the audio from wmtw and so what i did with one of these which i've repurchased since it's a panasonic um yeah tape recorder a cassette tape recorder i recorded a bunch of the shows now this isn't the original tape i've just sort of re-recorded them but this is an original era tape this is from like the mid 70s this is a kmart tape from the mid 70s and i recorded episode 315 i remember that very clearly that was one of the episodes that i recorded back in 1982 83 and so I kept that and I still had uh, a few of the um, books. So I would reread those once in a while. So it was always in the background and sometimes in the forefront, but nothing really until 1989, I walked into a Mr. Paperback in Bangor and they had two items. They had one of the F Dark Shadows Files magazines. Oh yeah, the Ed, Ed Gross, yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yep. A lot of a lot of that, and, and ended up getting a bunch of those. But they had one of those, and they also had um, the uh, VCR tape, the best of Dark Shadows, the vo first volume, because they were getting ready to promote the release of the actual 
series, which was going to be at Halloween of 1989. So that got me started. And then I had a friend who I worked with in community theater who was getting out of fandom. He had a whole box full of stuff. He says, give me a hundred bucks for it. Turns out there was like 30 or 40 uh, fanzines, World of Dark Shadows and oh. Inside the Old House. Great. And uh, there was a Dark Shadows, Barnabas Collins game in there and a bunch of other material that had addresses and so on on it. So I went ahead and uh, subscribed. And that was in around 1990, beginning of 1990 to the middle of 1990. And that's how I got back into it again. And um, I wrote one short story for uh, Kathy Resch, I think, uh, back in, I can't remember, 95, 96, somewhere in there. Uh, um, and uh, I subscribed up until about 2000 to mm -hmm. all that stuff. And then I was starting to get preparing myself to go back to uh, undergrad and finally grad school. So I kind of got away from that. And by that time, the fanzines were starting to kind of go out. But I had a huge collection of Dark Shadow stuff by the time I was ready to go to grad school. And I sold about 90% of it because yeah. I wanted five months worth of rent and food and so on. And I got it. I had a, yeah. I had a large enough collection. So I started recollecting probably about seven, seven or eight years ago. Yeah. And so I built up quite a bit of it. Again. We've all been there. I've, I've done the same thing. Um, I, you know, when I moved back from California with my late husband, you know, we had, we had been living in San Francisco for a couple of years, which was very expensive. And I had a ton of dark shadows, fanzines, and uh, I kept a lot. I kept like key items that I wanted to keep. Like I wasn't going to sell the cane and stuff like that. I kept that, but, um, but no, I'm not selling the cake, but I did, I did sell a lot of my fanzines. I kept a few and I sold them that now I look back, I'm like, oh, I should have, I shouldn't have sold those, but I've, yeah. I've managed to reacquire quite a few of them over the years. Uh, Joe Escobar was kind enough to provide a, there's yeah. a, a Google drive link that Madeline Marks also makes. Madeline. Madeline's I love great. you, Madeline. Thank you so much. <laughs> Madeline's wonderful. Yeah. And there you can, and, and Joe too. I mean, the, the, those yeah. are really valuable uh, resources. It's important yeah. to keep those around when you do research for your, for your videos or for my podcast, mm -hmm. sometimes I'll pull up one of those files and I'll, I'll look through to find some information. They're very some great interviews in there too. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah Lots absolutely. of great fiction. Violet Wells interview in one of the world of dark shadows. I think it's the only one she ever gave. I believe so. Yeah. Thank goodness that exists. You know, um, so I wish we could have, I wish there was some interview with Gordon Russell out there too. There, I wonder if there is somewhere, but he was very, pretty reclusive and he died kind of fairly young. young. Yeah. yeah. yeah he um, did. I don't know. Ed Gross would probably know if there are any interviews out there. He was conducting a bunch of interviews for a while. Yeah. Ed was supposed to come on to the podcast at one point and we never, we never were able to kind of make that set up a date for that but i got to reach out to him again because i i he he was also one of the gateways for me to discover the fandom was was the dark shadows files magazines yep. i saw the ad in the back of Monsterland magazine and it was around the same time that um my scrapbook memories of dark shadows came out too so it was like those two things kind of helped me find my way into the fan community um how about uh favorite characters and storylines from the show I don't say favorite character anymore because every time I say that, people, people nobody well, can really give me one. So, character as a child, it was hands down Barnabas, of course. I was mm -hmm. a little boy, and I identified with all of that. I also identified with David very, very much as a little mm -hmm. boy. 
Mm-hmm. So those characters really made a grand impression on me back then. But I have to say, I can't take my eyes off of Grayson Hall, no matter what she does, whether it's the movie, which must not be named or, <laughs> you, know, um, um, you know, the one I'm talking about, Satan and High Heels. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the um, one she, she said, yeah, she claimed yeah. she'd never did that um, movie, even though she was in it. <laughs> right. Whether it's that or Night Gallery or Dark Shadows or whatever it is, she's impossible not to notice. <laughs> you can't yeah. ignore her, even if she's Gargoyles. in the background. <laughs> that darn cat. Well, yeah. yeah. Night of the All... Iguana. She was wonderful. I mean, she was nominated for an Oscar for Night of the Iguana. She was fantastic. Yeah. She, she was duly impressive. And yeah. so be one of my favorites Thayer David for his versatility yeah incredible which, which Thayer David character is your favorite oh it would probably be uh Timothy later Elliot Stokes yeah <laughs> yeah T um, Elliot Stokes just yeah. because when he walked in a room he just even if he was in the dark he wasn't in the dark he yeah knew something yeah. some bs was going on here between Barnabas and, and yeah. Julia and he was he was not about it and he knew it yeah. So I always liked the way he could he could take take the scene the way he was supposed to not not like completely chew the scenery but take the scene the way he was supposed to, mm-hmm. and he was also very versatile in terms of his um, ability to uh, everything from his physical posturing and what we call actor's weight the way that he would move and walk yeah. and all of those things and and, and to this to his vocalizations and it's, I ain't gonna do nothing in one and then the other one he's very you know he's yeah. very uh, urbane and so he would be definitely one but you know a weird weirdly here's a character that always fascinated me because of his physical presence he was a big tall man but he was a minor character uh and he used to he used to stand in for uh Robert Rodin every once in a while as well and that's Dwayne Morris. Oh, Dwayne Morris. Yeah, Diablos. Diablos. <laughs> yeah. uh, because of his voice. You have summoned me. <laughs> like, well, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, he just, he had a he had a good theatrical sense. And yes. Vocal, vocal was very good. Yeah. But ultimately, in terms of watching an actor and learning from an actor and learning about precision from an actor, it's Humbert Estrada. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. that's so they all have their niches that i really love and yeah. but humber well he was a teacher and he also ran a theater uh he, mm-hmm. he he did a lot of different things in his career but he was very physically vocally and focus wise he was very precise and mm-hmm. I, I found maybe one or two really tiny screw-ups that he takes that's it it's very rare yeah it's like are you kidding me? Over a period of, you know, I don't know how many episodes, uh, yeah. 100 episodes or whatever it was, what it was, he was just so super reliable and also very rich in, in the way that he portrayed his characters in that precise way. Yeah. yeah. Did you ever get to meet any of the uh, Dark Shadows cast? Yep. I did. I got patted on the rear end by uh, Louis Edmonds in, a, in, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in an elevator <laughs> and he was such a sweetheart. I just, Was that I at a festival or? Yes, it was at a festival. Okay. Uh, it, was it was the only festival I ever went to, so it was a memorable one, obviously. <laughs> um, I met um, uh, uh, Catherine Lee Scott. Uh, uh-huh. She signed a bunch of stuff for me, you know, just brief kind of encounters like that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and um, the one I found to be super friendly was Chris Pennock. He oh, was yeah. really super friendly. And yeah. 
It was really like, cool, man. You know, he was just really enthusiastic about the whole thing. Had a really good energy that day. This was one of the last ones that they had at the at the Marriott. Um, yeah. the, 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 down before the twin towers went down they had yeah. the last one the year of but yeah. uh 9-11 but uh this was in 99 so you know you take the a train down yeah. i had a great time i had some friends that lived up in the 80s on the west side so that was cool yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and spent two and a half three days just kind of hanging out and i'm a shy guy around a lot of people at first so i, mm -hmm. I just kind of floated around I, I saw bob isle there uh-huh uh, and I think I bought, I think that's where I bought uh, my um, Dumb Shadows CDs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I got those from Bob, too. And, <laughs> and the and the interviews, the first set yes, of Yes, same, same. I got those from Bob through the through the mail at the time. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, uh, there's several other fans that I met there. But uh, yeah, it was it was a fun time. I wish I had uh, I wish I had the wherewithal and the time. To have yeah. gone to more, I'm sure you did too. Oh, I, I feel the same way. I only went to two of them. Uh, I tried to go to the twenty, uh, the twenty sixteen fiftieth anniversary one, but I, I, as I've said many times, it was sold out. And I, I and Wilson was still doing Sacy's, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 well, there, we have PayPal now. We <laughs> bless her, bless her. She was in her age. She wasn't going. Yeah, change. I know. Yeah, and she, she was. It's amazing it was that she even did that. Yeah. But I wish I had gone to to more of them. I too was very shy back then. Uh, you know, in the, in the especially in the eighties and nineties, I I couldn't have imagined kind of doing that on on my own at that time. And I I wish I had had the wherewithal at that time to made the effort or the the attempt to go. And I think I would have enjoyed that and being getting involved with the Collinsport players. That would have been fun too because yes. they they did some yes. fun stuff. But I wish I too I had met. Uh, Humbert, uh, Alan Estrato, he only did one shadow con. He went to one of the shadow cons. That's the only oh, time he, he ever went. Um, in California, wasn't it? Yes, in California. Yeah. And I know Patrick McRae interviewed him for the Consport Historical Society podcast, mm -hmm. which was really yep. great that he did. Um, but I, I worked with a director here who was a Dark Shadows fan too. Uh, and uh, he met Humper as well. He went to see him in a in a production of, I think it was Equus. I think he went to see him in- Oh I yes, believe, I he believe played Dysart in Equus, yes. Yeah, uh, and and yeah. he he met, he met waited and went to, met him uh, after the show. He went to go uh, backstage or something to, to you know, congratulate him on the performance. And of course he mentioned Nicholas Blair, he's a Dark Shadows yeah. fan. He was he was very nice. He, was, he said he was yeah. very, yeah. very friendly and and- stuff when he uh when he met him so um yeah um now what about favorite uh storylines from the show oh god i right now i haven't been going through entire storylines for a while i've been going through like 10 episode story arcs okay uh, and i've been just going gaga over 1968 which most people don't go gaga over oh the adam adam uh, creation of all adam and, of, Eve. Yeah. Oh. And, and several sections of it yeah dream curse yeah mm -hmm. and and angelique is a vampire the whole thing. sure i i um, love that stuff too i do yeah. because again humbert's in it and yeah. and i love watching him as not only as a as a character but also as an exercise in learning about that kind of precision stage acting mm -hmm. uh but yeah, if I had to go and and only have one would be 1897. Oh yeah, yeah. That's when I. That's when I. And 1795 is fantastic because it was the first of its kind. It was it was a unique animal in itself, and 
and deserves a lot of praise for creating that resident company that where they can play different characters and do all that sort of thing. It was it was very groundbreaking in its way. But 1897 to me had the best, the most erudite, the most clever, the most witty writing in it. With Violet Wells coming on board uh, and actually getting name credit. She'd done work for Gordon before, apparently. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't even so much a huge fan of getting into 1897 with the kids and all of that stuff because it it just seemed to go on for a, a little bit longer than I than I wanted it to. There was some good suspense in there. Don't get me wrong, but once you got into 1897, you you saw how it shifted into third gear. I mean, it yeah. was just go. Yeah. Uh, Firing on all cylinders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, agreed. And you, and, I mean, and you had all the major players in there. I mean, it was just, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, 1897, if I had to pick one, uh, it would probably would be 1897. Um, and I, I typically, honestly, I, I know a lot of people would recommend starting Dark Shadows from episode one. And there is something to be said for that, absolutely. But typically when, you know, when I, people ask me, where should I start? A lot of times I will tell them to start with 1897 because I know they'll get hooked if they start with 1897. They might not get hooked if they start with episode one. They might, if, they might, might not. But. They have, they're patient people, they, they might still get hooked. Uh, yeah. Because a lot of times people are, well, where's the vampire? You know, that's because yeah. they've heard that there's a vampire in it. Yeah, uh, I, I never tell people because I, I deal with um, 18 to 25 year olds in my classes. Mm -hmm. I never tell any of them start with one because I know. Yeah, what, same. What's this? I say, go back to that after you get a little sense of context. Maybe look at 1795, look at 1897, because that's there's some real color in there. And I think yeah. you might be interested in that. So, right. So, yeah yeah i agree i think starting at one is great i did that when it first came on the sci-fi channel mm -hmm. i started with one and just watched it and that was the first time i'd actually seen all of those episodes was in the early 90s so mm -hmm. yeah yeah it was amazing that they finally released those i mean that was yeah it wasn't well, we never thought we would get to see those i, I mean because they weren't in syndication so it was a quest you know to get that and the last year the first year and the last year they were not showing in syndication so it's you know i remember getting that book the the history of dark shadows uh which uh the festival put out nine ogle actually wrote the text for that but um that was kind of how i was able to really get the fine details of the 1966 stuff um until we finally got to see it i think i first watched it i did I remember if it was sci-fi or the MPI tapes. Because I remember MPI released Dark Shadows the beginning. They did in the mid nineties. They yeah. started the collector series. So yeah. I got that. Uh, oh, the collector series. That's right, Dark Shadows collector series. I got I got those tapes. Um. All right. So last question here. Um, in the going into the future here, uh, what would you like to see in terms of Dark Shadows in popular culture? Um. Do you think Dark Shadows will continue to maintain a presence in popular culture? I think it will. It may, uh, it, how much of a presence is going to depend on people like Mark Perry. Yeah. Uh, and, and because you need to have industry people with track records who have their head on their shoulders and understand mm -hmm. entertainment as well as being enthusiastic about the product, yeah. which is Shadows. Uh, the thing that's tricky about Dark Shadows is, is, and I think Mark knows this, 
um, a lot of uh, older fans like our soaps, uh, or at least myself. Um, oh, I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we tend to uh, want it formatted the way that it was formatted in 1966, which is, of course, it's a it's a it's a daytime serial, and that format is responsible for a lot of the vibe of the show. It's really responsible for the whole idea of, uh, you talk about all the literary uh, connections to Dark Shadows. I, I think of uh, the theatrical connections to Dark Shadows, sure. one of which happens to be um, classical 19th century melodrama. Not the, not the stuff like the riverboat stuff with Snidely Whiplash, but the stuff that Dion Busico and uh, several other people wrote back then at the time um, shows like um, the streets of New York, which they would change the name of the city everywhere they went when they toured it. So they would get <laughs> popular um, references to each city. But anyway, it had spectacle, it had music, not a musical, but a drama with music, which is mellow drama. It had the so-called cliffhangers, uh, you know, the act breaks where, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Are they going to survive this kind of thing that went on, which Dan Curtis ended up doing every single day, started doing it once a week and then every single day. And it doesn't have to be in, in, in the close world of television. It didn't have to be action every time. It could be thought, you know, yeah. subtext. But it was always there. It was yeah. always there in some in, in some respects, sometimes in the middle of the show, they would have this this sort of thing. So to me. That element is tough to to replicate. Yeah. Uh, so it has to be sort of crafted in a different way. and and I really think that it does it does not serve serve it well to uh, reboot it. And yeah. I think this is what Mark has said all along. It's this, let's just take it beyond that and do something else with plenty of references. Yeah. And characters from from the original, but not reboot so much. So I think that's that's a big part of bringing it really firmly back into the consciousness of popular culture. In terms of the show itself and what we have after fifty five, so almost sixty years now, uh, that we we have to take a responsibility and pass on. We do things like podcasts, try to get young people to, to be interested in it. I just had a seventeen year old that I directed in a staged reading uh, a few months ago who was really interested in vampires and spooky stuff and i said this is what you have to do go to tubi do this do this do this so they're there they're out there yeah and they want to be interested it's just a matter of you know everybody's a true fan even yeah. the first one even the yeah. first yeah you know, yeah even the last one so you need to we, i think we need to cultivate more of those as well but i okay. certainly hope that mark uh is able to come through with the funding and i know he has the support of dcp and several other people now he has to come through with the funding the full the full boat and, and uh, yeah. i know he's working his tail off on that so thank you mark for that Appreciate yeah it. i'm uh, fingers crossed another thing i'm, I'm excited about that you have this great show so how do we find uh <laughs> holland's port after dark tell us about that you can find it on youtube uh, it is a podcast. Uh, my channel is called Alan Gallant, A-L-A-N uh, space G-A-L-L-A-N-T. But also, if you just type in Collins Port After Dark in your YouTube search, you will find me. So this is specifically is, is a YouTube show? It is because a it's 
really visual right now, especially right now. It's a great show, folks. If you uh, if you get the opportunity, uh, which I make make the time uh, to to check it out because uh, it's really uh, Alan does a great job, puts a lot of effort into it, and uh, and I love just the mix. You have the humor, you have some music in there too. Uh, you know, you were playing some great music when you were showing the, the gun Try cards. to play the stuff that I can get away with, like stuff off of old Seabird discs and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> It was really cool. It was it was great, very evocative of the era too. So I I loved that about it too. Um, I'm always I'm always wary. I'm like, what do I? What can I play? What can I not play? Like I just not had easy to tell. It's really not. You know. I just had David Selby on, and I was like, I can't do a Quentin anniversary celebration and not use Quentin's theme. Mm -hmm. I have I had to put it. I hope I don't get in trouble for that. But it's just I'm not monetizing. It's just a little the, snippet. The Charlie Green one might be a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's too it's too late now. I'm not okay. No problem. <laughs> we'll see. Unless Jim unless if Jim comes you have Quentin's stamp of approval, it should go through. I I do have a fan MIDI version of the Quentin's <laughs> theme. So I may oh, I, I have to. I'll ever have to replace He's it with that. They used to put those on websites back in the nineties. I remember the MIDI themes. Yes, yeah, yeah. There's a fan who did all whole bunch of Dark Shadows ones. Um, okay, well, Alan, I want to thank you for uh, joining me today. I know you're busy and you're you, you're off to. Good. Sure. Uh, good. So glad to be here and so honored that you would have me. Oh my goodness, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you, and I'm glad we we got to speak uh, here after. You know, communicating over the last couple of years, it's good to to actually get to on Facebook and stuff. But it's great to to get to chat with you here, and uh, I hope that many people will be subscribing to your channel. Uh, that's the best way to keep up with Alan's content. Make sure to subscribe to uh, Colin Sport After Doctor to, to the YouTube channel, Alan Gallant. I will put a link to that uh, in the show notes and in the YouTube description as well. Just click right on through and subscribe and like uh, Alan's videos, and I look forward to many more of them. All right. Thank you. Take care. This episode's going out in time for New Year's Eve, so I want to wish you a very happy New Year. Be sure to check out all of the podcasts I mentioned, Between the Shadows, hosted by Kara Tillitz and Kristen Pierce. It's a wonderful show. I hope they come back soon with some new ones. Uh, there's also Dark Paradise, hosted by Rachel Pulliam, which covers Dark Shadows and Strange Paradise. And there's also Resident of Collinwood, hosted by Jewel T. Sains, who was often joined by Patrick McRae and Gordon Domowski. Jewel is undertaking the monumental task of covering every single episode of Dark Shadows, starting from the first one. I wish him luck with that endeavor. That's going to take him a while. But actually, with the amount of content that Jewel puts out, maybe, maybe he'll get through it faster than I would have, certainly. And uh, speaking of Patrick, I highly recommend you check out his uh, really fun fun was the night before Christmas, the Dark Shadows version. Uh, as, actually, I say really fun, but it's actually very touching. I, I got choked up reading it, so I'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes, as well as to the podcasts I mentioned, including uh, all of the great classic horror podcasts I mentioned, Monster Kid Radio, Classic Horrors Club, Diecast Movie Podcast. There's also Bobby Lugosi with his wonderful Dusty Old Movies channel. Amanda Reyes is made for TV Mayhem, which is not about Dark Shadows, but she does cover several Dan Curtis TV movies. She was just recently inducted into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. Definitely encourage you to check out Amanda's podcast, Literary License, which was covering Dark Shadows for a while. I think they still are coming back to that eventually. I'm not sure. I don't think they finished 1841 Parallel Time yet, but uh, hopefully they'll get 
get back to that. They've done some great interviews with cast members and uh, definitely worth checking out. Um, there's also The Pit of Ultimate Dark Shadows, hosted by Daryl Worrell, which is more of a fan fiction podcast, which is like a hybrid between Dark Shadows and a whole bunch of other shows and movies, etc. So that's another one. So lots of uh, cool stuff out there. And of course, uh, it goes without saying, Colin Sport After Dark with Alan Gallant. Be is for Barnabas. Uh, I look forward to more from uh, Alan. And uh, yeah, definitely uh, very exciting times. And hey, if you want to do a Dark Shadows podcast, now's the time. Give it a shot. Uh, what what do you have to lose? You know, if you have an angle you want to approach, or I get a lot of requests from people who want to come on to this podcast, which I appreciate the enthusiasm, certainly. I'm flattered that people want to be on the podcast. I have a list of people um, that I still have not brought on who I promised appearances to. So I've currently stopped promising appearances to anybody uh, on the podcast for the time being. Maybe I'll do some like fan corner thing where people can uh, submit a clip and I'll play it if it's short, uh, but I'll, I'll cross that bridge later. But um, hey, you know what? What's stopping you from doing your own Dark Shadows podcast? Why wait to be a guest on somebody else's podcast when you can be the host of your own show? I'd love to see that in 2024. How about some new Dark Shadows fan podcasts or YouTube channels? If you have a specific interesting angle you want to approach Dark Shadows from or something you want to say, do it. So with that said, have a happy new year and we'll see you in 2024. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly vanished, for there will always be Terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.